The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Ask for help as we come before this word. Heavenly Father, um, we always are reminded as we meet here together that you speak. Oh, and your words are are true, they overcome us. Your word always comes true. And uh, so we wanna humble ourselves before you, Lord. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and be with us. Help us to hear your word. Lord, please speak a better message to each one, our, our very hearts, write your word on our hearts. Help us to believe you, Lord. Help me to teach this faithfully, clearly. Uh, and we pray that we would all be formed by your word as we come to you in faith. Uh, let us have the kind of faith that pleases you, Lord, and let us taste that reward. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So finally, we're coming back to our study through the book of Hebrews. It's exciting to me, and as we dive back in, all of a sudden we realize we're jumping into cold water because this morning's passage has one of the stiffest warnings in all of the Bible. Not only does it have a warning, it warns the kinds of people in the kind of a situation where you wouldn't think you're supposed to warn them. Because the people being warned here are suffering people. Their lives are hard. And so it's easy to think, right? Well, that's the kind of person who deserves a break, not a warning, right? And yet here it is. So before we get into it, I want to think with you just a little bit about warnings, how do you tend to respond to a warning? To be honest with you, it kind of gets at my pride. I feel, I feel offended. Um, kind of want to blow it off. And, and some warnings we should blow off. If the warning's not coming from a wise or a loving source, yeah, why listen to it? Maybe you've warned someone before. If you're a parent, I, I, you've probably warned a child if you're a friend, maybe you've warned a friend. Why did you do that? Could be because you loved them very much and you were concerned about the trajectory of their choices. Isn't, isn't there a need for warnings in the context of love? So we ask this question as we come before this passage. What if God wanted to take the opportunity to warn you? Would you want to humble yourself enough to listen carefully or would you have a tendency to blow it off? We want to hear God's warning with a humble heart today. It's actually a privilege to hear God warn us. Jesus said this to his disciples, Mark 13, 13. Jesus said, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. It's an important reality for our text today. What did Jesus say to his followers? Somehow they're going to be hated. And then he, then he tells them they need to, what do they need to do in that second sentence? They need to endure to the end. And you see, you see this tension, don't you? It's hard to endure when you're hated. It's, it's hard to keep going. Paul wrote this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, he said, all who desire to live a godly life, right, just pause. Do you desire to live a godly life? I hope so. If you're, if you're a Christian, that's our desire. I want to live a godly life. Okay, buckle up. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, we know, we know very clearly, right? This is going to look very different for different, it's going to look very different for different people in different times and different places, Okay. Obviously, our story is nothing like the story of those Christians in Afghanistan today. God help them, or North Korea. But we know here, every cultural context is going to have some value in it that directly contradicts Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he said. It's always going to be that way. And so if you're courageous about belonging to Jesus... And what you say and how you live, you're going to face that conflict somehow. 
and there's going to be a price to pay. In a, way, in a way, the first time you pay the price, you, you come, I'm willing. But I think what we see here in Scripture, what we see in, in Hebrews, is the heaviness of that price over time will test the reality of your faith. The more you suffer over time, will test the reality of your faith and the heaviness of that price of continued suffering. It can have your heart wondering, is loyalty to Jesus and his word, is it really worth it? Is it worth it anymore? It's too hard. You know, it's exactly the kind of thing the audience of this book was going through. Hebrews, we, we remember, was written to a group of marginalized Jewish Christians who were influenced to abandon their confidence in Jesus and go back to the Mosaic law. They, they, could, they could belong to their community again. They could go to temple again. They could even have the Bible again. They could have the sacrifices again, but they wouldn't have to pay the price of belonging to Jesus. So, you know, we, we began this book back in September. We walked through the author's argument, haven't we? Um, he's, he's, gone, he's, he's gone to common ground. He's gone to their authority, the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. And he's, he's argued from the Old Testament that worship, according to the Mosaic law, was never enough and never the ultimate goal. No, he's shown us over and over again that Jesus fulfills it all. Like, a, like the substance to the shadow, like, the prom, like the, a promise to a fulfillment, Jesus fulfills it all. And so no, never leave Christ for anything. He's worth it. Eyes on Christ. That's how you keep going. And so now as we hit chapter 10, um, his focus, after he's taught them all these beautiful things about Jesus and how Jesus fulfills all these promises, now his focus is on how they need to respond to this reality in their lives. You've heard all these glories of Christ, how he fulfills all these promises. How are you going to respond? And, and it starts here in 10 with a warning, a big, a big warning. <laughs> And so I'm, I want to unpack this warning in, in five parts. Five parts. So as a warning, it's things to remember very seriously when following Jesus through suffering. And if you've been warned by someone who loves you before, often a warning will have two sides to it, right? Here's a negative. You better not do that. You better not do that. Here's a positive. You better remember this. You better hang on to this. Right? And so it's like that in this warning. There's, there's, there's five parts of this. Things to remember very seriously when you're following Jesus through suffering. So if God's word is true, and it is, how important is this for, for us? Are you going to have to follow Jesus through suffering? We know, we know, again, some people's stories. I mean, my life in comparison to some of yours, I've never suffered, not in comparison to some of your suffering. Um, there's always going to be different varieties of who suffers from what and how much, right? We know that. That's in the hand of God. But it's a guarantee that if you want to live for Jesus and you live in this broken world, you're going to have to figure out how to follow him through sustained difficulty, through sustained suffering. And so this warning is love. To help us do that. So let's hear the warning. Five parts. The first two I'm going to take uh, far more quickly than I should. The reason I'm doing that is because it's review. We've already seen these things before. First two I'm going to take more quickly. Then I'm going to spend more time on the three points from, the t from, the, from our text today. Okay? But here's the first part of the warning. So we're going we're to call it things to remember. Essential things to remember when you're following Christ through suffering. Number one. Remember, never forget the priceless treasure of having Jesus. Never forget the priceless treasure of having Jesus. Uh, just look back up to chapter 10, verse 19. It's right here in your Bibles. First of all, we see what's the, what's the first word in verse 19? Therefore, do you see, do you see how we're, we're transitioning He's been saying, look at Jesus. This is who he is. Okay, now therefore, because we have Jesus, so we're thinking about what it means to have Jesus. And then he says, therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, therefore, my precious community, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It's just, just pause there for a moment. 
Do you realize what you have if you have Jesus Christ? You know, without, without fellowship with God, there's no true meaning in life. There's no healing of our brokenness. There's no wisdom for life. There's no source of love and beauty. There's no forgiveness of sins or hope for the future. Fellowship with God is the most precious thing anyone could ever have. And we're reminded here that Jesus alone provides that. And he, not only does he alone provide that, he provides it lavishly. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Remember, remember several basics to our faith, right? Number one, God is holy, set apart, creator and Lord of the universe, morally perfect. And, and in light of him and his standards, we remember who we are. We're sinners. I am not a good person when I measure myself by God's standards. I haven't loved him with my whole heart, mind and strength, and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. And some of you right now, you're, you're reaching towards that one good deed or good thought in your life, and you're like, see, I'm a good person. It does not work like that. It does not work like that. God wants 100% obedience all the time. So the more and more we're honest with ourselves, the more and more we realize we're sinners and we deserve judgment from a holy God. But we also see here God's lavish grace that he brings undeserving sinners to himself, and he doesn't do it in, in a halfway kind of invitation. He welcomes them fully. He invites those who have sinned and sinned horribly to come and have fellowship with him in confidence, courage to be in the presence of God and know him as our father. How can this be? It's through the blood of Jesus. Don't you love that gospel? Jesus lived a perfect life, so through faith in him, you could be counted righteous. Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for your sins so that in him you can be forgiven. Jesus rose from the dead and intercedes for you, and through him you are welcomed into the throne room of God for grace and mercy in time of need. There's nothing better than this. You cannot overemphasize the priceless treasure of having Jesus. And yet, we know when you are in sustained suffering, when life is threatened or compromised, you can become obsessed with what you are losing. All your mental and emotional energy goes into preserving these things. And before we know it, we can be distracted away from the treasure of having Christ. Have you felt that in your own heart? Have you been distracted away from the treasure of having Christ? Now, we would never say, when you suffer, don't grieve. No, that's unbiblical. Grieve, lament, do it in light of the treasure that you have in Christ. But suffering wants to, wants to seem to kind of minimize Christ to us and, and have these other things become more important than him. And so we need to remember, it's part of the warning here, never forget, especially in suffering, that Jesus is everything. If you have everything and you lose Jesus, you've lost everything. If you lose everything, but you have Jesus, you have everything. This is your first warning. Remember the priceless treasure of having Jesus Christ. And I hope you have him today. I hope you have him. I hope you put your faith in him. Second warning, verses 24 to 25. The writer says, it's right here again in your Bible. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I know what people wanna do when they're sad and suffering. I feel it sometimes too. What do you want to do? You want to stay home by yourself. Especially if there was persecution for meeting with other Christians. But the author here knows that Christians cannot make it alone. Did you know that? You cannot make it alone. Christianity is a family affair. It is in our design. We are community creatures. We, we stay alone 
separated, we forget the true story of the world, don't we? We forget what the good life really is. And you can't help but see it. I've been a pastor 18 years. You can't help but see it. People who leave Jesus also tend to be the ones who disappear from church community. He wants this group to hold fast through sustained suffering. And he says, don't neglect to meet together. You you better not forget the importance of community. That's the second warning. Remember to cling, cling to Christian community. And we'll just admit it's not perfect, right? It's not perfect. But I almost wonder if that's part of the point. How are you going to practice forgiveness if there's nobody to forgive? How are you going to show grace if there aren't people in your life who don't deserve it? How are we going to live out the gospel without accepting one another in the midst of that mess? But the author's clear, right? Nowhere else can you be so encouraged to trust Jesus and live for him than with a sustained connection to a local church. This is the second part of the warning. First one is most important. Never forget the priceless treasure of having Jesus. Number two, cling to community. You want to you follow Jesus through sustained suffering? Cling to community. Now we come to the warning, verses 26 to 31. I want to give some context uh, to us before we hit the warning explicitly. And I want to remember what we learn about this audience from this book. So if you're paying attention to the scripture being read, you heard the author say, remember the former days when you guys were amazing? Okay, you remember that? You guys were amazing. Let's remember what he said about them in chapter five, Hebrews 5, 11. Look at what the author said. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. So we, we got to understand the details here a little bit. About this, we have much to say. What, what's the this? What does he have much to say about? Well, if you read Hebrews, it's pretty plain. He's talking about the perfect priesthood of Jesus. That's what the this is. The perfect priesthood of Jesus. He's the ultimate priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. He is the way to be right with God and enjoy fellowship with him. That's what he wants to talk about. That's the this. And he says, but it's hard to explain, and it's not because it's so complicated your little minds can't handle it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's hard to explain because you are, and the Greek word there is nothros, and it means you're sluggish of mind, and it's, it's, not, it's not a lack of intellectual ability. It's a, a lack of desire. You don't want to hear it, is what he's saying. You don't want to treasure it. And then you and I can think, well, why on earth would any group of Christians be slow to treasure the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ? Interesting. Commentator Philip Hughes writes this. For a Jew to confess faith in Christ crucified brought on him the detestation and obloquy of his compatriots, the ruination of his business, and even expulsion from the family circle. Now, I know most of you know what the word obloquy means. I did not. Strong public criticism or verbal abuse. You see what happens with these implications? If I celebrate that Jesus is the ultimate priest and the ultimate sacrifice... That means the Mosaic law, as the writer of Hebrews says, worship according to the Mosaic law is obsolete. It's passed away. It's no longer necessary. And if I say, I bank my salvation on a crucified Messiah and no longer need the temple system and the Levitical priests, my community will ostracize me. And so if I land on the perfect priesthood of Christ like I should, the implications of that for my life are painful. Can we not talk about that? Is there anything like that for you? Something loud and clear in the Bible? Every context of culture, it's different. Something loud and clear in the Bible, and your heart's like, I don't want to talk about that. 
because I know what the implications are for my relationships and my cultural context. It's going to bring pain. F.F. Bruce adds this, another commentator on Hebrews. He says of the audience, their sluggishness showed itself in a disposition to settle down at the point where they had reached, since to go farther would have meant too complete a severing of old ties. To such people, the exposition of the high priestly service of Christ with the corollary that the old order of priesthood and sacrifice had been abolished once for all might well have been unacceptable. And then this next line is really important. The intellect is not over ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. unpalatable. It's too painful. I feel it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to engage in it. So these people who used to be just like fired up, so courageous for Jesus, they become sluggish about celebrating him. And the reason is sustained suffering. It's sustained suffering. So here's a, here's a warning to us, right? We will all undergo somehow sustained suffering. Even if it's not persecution explicitly, it counts. And that sustained suffering will kind of want to, the current of it will want to move you to sluggishness. I just don't value Christ like I used to. I'm, I'm just not as devoted to him as I used to be. I'm not as hungry for him as I used to be. It'll move you to sluggishness. And then the author here says that sluggishness wants to take you to dark places that we would call apostasy. No longer loving Christ at all. No longer following him at all. Giving up on him completely. And that's exactly the concern of this author. I've seen you move to sluggishness in part because of the influence of the sustained suffering, and, I'm, and I don't want it to go any further. So it's this warning. Number one, remember the treasure of having Christ. Number two, clean the community. And number three, here's the warning. Remember the reality of judgment. You think it's harsh for him to tell suffering people that they should remember the reality of judgment? That's not the time and the place, man. They're suffering. Remember the reality of judgment. Uh, listen, why are they tempted to leave Jesus? So life will get easier. What does the reality of judgment remind you of? If you leave Jesus, in the end, life will not get easier. It won't work. You, you give away all your hope. If you do this, it's, it's, a, it's a lie to, to give up on Jesus so life will get easier. It's, it's just a temporary, shadowy easier. It won't, it won't actually do it in the end. Let's look and see what he says. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fear of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now listen, it's very clear in context that when he uses this phrase, if we go on sinning deliberately, he is not talking about the regular daily sins of faithful Christians, okay? Sure, there is an aspect, you, you sinned today and you did it willfully, that's why you did it, okay? You wanted to. But we know from the New Testament, we know from Hebrews, we, we know from context abounding, right? Just because you become a Christian does not mean you become perfect, Amen? Looking out at you all, you all should have been more vigorous in that, okay? <laughs> you're looking at me, you're like, yeah, that's true, amen, okay? Um, and in fact, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar, the truth's not in you. That's what John says. So this go on sinning willfully, this is a, this is a different kind of sin. And, and you think about what's in the, the author's mind from the Old Testament. This is that Old Testament idea of sinning with a high hand. It's, it's, it's rebellious finality in a way. It's, it's a... Uh, sustained willful rejection. It's a, I'm, I'm done with Jesus. I'm, I, I, I am done with living according to his ways. I don't want to obey him in this way. I'm, I'm done with relying on him exclusively for my salvation. I, I, I move past just kind of forgetting it. I'm not I'm like, I don't need this anymore. 
If we go on sinning deliberately, move, you know, that, that sluggish, the dangerous place of sluggishness moving towards apostasy. If we continue on in that, we go on with it, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. These are people that have received the knowledge of the truth. They've heard about Jesus. They even professed faith in him. And now they're done with him. And there no longer remains a sacrifice for them. What does that mean? Well, of course, there's still a sacrifice for sins, right? I mean, this this whole book has been (laughs) Jesus' perfect sacrifice for sins. He's obtained an eternal redemption once and for all. Of course, there's a perfect sacrifice for sins, just not for you. If you go on sinning, willfully, rebelliously, leaving Christ. I mean, it makes sense. You had one hope, and now you're leaving it. What hope's left? What hope is left if you leave Jesus? And then these words, all that remains is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Repeatedly, right, the picture of judgment is fire. And I guess it works, huh? What does fire do? Consumes completely. What is God called? Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. You know, there's, when we, when we hear the gospel and we just think of what God did to save us, right, that his son took a cross to save us, and we can be so thrilled with his love, and we should be. And we, and we can be so thrilled with forgiveness, and we should be. We forget the price that we're seeing there. The price of forgiveness was wrath, right? I mean, Jesus took a cross, and then later to go, eh, the cross. Not only are you now relying on yourself, right? You're going to stand before God with your own sins on your head. You're now going to stand before God going, yeah, the cross. And that's why he says, this is a fearful expectation of judgment. So like with every point the author of Hebrew makes, he makes a point and then he's going to show you where he got it from the Old Testament, right? He's a master of common ground. The people he's talking to, they believe the Old Testament, So he's going to make all his points about Jesus. He's going to show them from the Old Testament. So they're like, yeah, that's right. That's what it says. He does it again here. Verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The author here in this section is working from Deuteronomy. And so setting aside the law of Moses in context means I'm I'm worshiping idols. That's what it means. I'm going to follow idolatry. That's what it means. And so in that context, right, Israel under the Mosaic law, if a member of that believing community says, I'm going to go worship Baal or whatever idol, what was supposed to happen to them according to the law? Execution on evidence of two or three witnesses, right? Let's, this is not, let's make sure this is not happenstance. Is this hardcore? Is this real? Is this confirmed? Execution. Now we got to pause here for a second. Remember, in the time of the Mosaic Law, Israel was a theocracy, right? It is a political kingdom with God explicitly as king, ruling, making decisions, okay? God told them that the one thing they can guarantee would destroy their nation and community, what is it? What's the one thing that can destroy the people of Israel? Idolatry. God said to them, if you worship me, I'll take care of it. If you don't worship me, you have no hope. And so that meant the worst thing that could ever happen in the community was explicit idolatry, right? And so what's the law say? Execution for the sake of the community. Well, I hope you realize that some things are different now that Jesus has come. Yes, are you with me? We're in the new covenant. The church is not a political kingdom, right? There are no executions overseen by the church in the name of Jesus, okay? Difference between the covenants. We do not apply physical force to advance the cause of Christ, no. But don't let that make you think there isn't judgment for idolatry. 
fact, it's worse. Look at 29 to 31. If that's true in the Mosaic law, the author's saying, how, if, if that's true to rebel against the Mosaic law and run to idols, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Because we've seen all through Hebrews, what's better, Moses and his covenant or Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the new covenant? It can't compare. Jesus is infinitely better. And so if it was that hardcore on rebelling against Moses and the Mosaic law, what do you think it is to disdain Jesus? That's what how much, how much worse, how much worse, it's worse. And here's the irony, right? Do you hear what this author's saying? It is worse for you to leave Jesus for the Mosaic law than it was for those Old Testament Jews to leave the Mosaic law for idolatry. It's worse. Because Jesus is so much better. And God, who, who brings this judgment, right? In the Mosaic law, two or three witnesses need to be executed. Who brings this judgment? Verse 30, the Lord will bring it. The Lord will bring it. He will do it himself. Because to abandon Jesus does three things. You see it, verse 20, 29, the first one. The one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God. Read the beginning of Hebrews and you see the value of Jesus Christ. The final word, the radiance of the Father, the one who took a, 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 the, the value of Jesus Christ and to, a, to, to proclaim him and then leave him disgraces who he is. It devalues who he is. And then you realize you're despising the Father's greatest treasure. This is my beloved Son. Some people say, I can have God without Jesus. No, you can't. No, you can't. The living God is not happy with that. So you, you disgrace the person of the Son. Then he says, uh, the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This is profaning the work of the son. So the blood of the covenant is a lot there, right? It basically means Jesus has brought a new way for you to know God, complete forgiveness, declared righteous, fellowship with God through his cross and resurrection. And if you joined in the visible community saying, we believe that, we're going to worship that to get, we're going to worship God that way. And then you show that you, you really didn't believe it. You didn't really treasure it. And you leave it. You deny it. You don't need it anymore. It's like you're treating the work of Christ on the cross as if it's garbage. If you just ponder, I don't know the mysteries of these things, but what did the Father do when he gave up his Son to save us? And then to have the pride and the audacity to look at that and go, it's junk to me. You can see why it says, this outrage is the spirit of grace. That sounds, that sounds strange, doesn't it? The spirit, the Holy Spirit of grace, undeserved love. And we, we remember, right? The father ordained salvation. This is how it's gonna go. The son accomplishes salvation. I did it, it's finished. And the spirit applies salvation, wakes you up to himself, gives you the gift of faith, keeps you, encourages you, applies grace to you. To look at the work of the Holy Spirit who, who, who wants to spotlight Christ to you. This is what the Spirit wants to do in our life. He wants you to value Jesus Christ and then to take the work of the Spirit and the grace that he would offer to help you value Jesus Christ and be like, I don't value him at all. I'm out. The Spirit is outraged. He's not happy. He's not amused. For we know, and now the author's quoting Deuteronomy again, we know so he knows, his audience knows. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are people who are in the visible community of faith who deny the God they claim to worship. And then verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
what could be more fearful? There's no argument you can win. There's no excuse that you can give. He knows the truth better than you. There's no end. This is not an enemy you can defeat or escape. He made the way to be right with him. You didn't want it, and now you've fallen into his hands. That's a scary thing. And what are we supposed to say? But yes, it is. Yes, it is. So I say all these hard words, and I'm wondering how you feel. Um, what do you think the attitude of the author was in this? Is he, is he being self-righteous? He used the word we in 26. If we go on sinning deliberately. This is a warning in love. Because sluggishness tends to want to move to apostasy. And in sustained suffering, you're going to encounter that, and you need to remember the reality of the judgment of God. And for those of us who do belong to Christ, what's that going to do in you? It's kind of, kind of, it makes you sit up straight, right? It, it makes you think, oh, oh, yeah, that's what this God is like. And, and I don't want to fall into the hands of a living God like that. I want to fall in the other way, knowing him as my father through Christ. And then you're going to think, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it to cling to Christ through sustained suffering. And that's what he wants. And he takes him to the, the fourth, our fourth part today. Remember your confidence. He doesn't believe that this group of people is heading to that place of sinning willfully and denying the cross. He doesn't believe that about them. He says that earlier in this book. He says it now. So that's why he takes them to the next, next thing he wants them to remember. You remember the judgment of God? Also, remember yourselves. Look at verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You guys remember who you were? That's what he's saying to them. Do you remember who you were? And he uses like an athletic term for them. They were tough through suffering. We see some of their toughness. They stood firm for Christ through public reproach, mockery, insult, degradation. You ever been publicly mocked by a community? Publicly hated? Publicly scorned? Devalued? Ostracized? I've only experienced these things in small, small ways. Deeply painful. I can't imagine it being explicit and repeated. They stood. They endured it. They clung to Christ and one another through it. Amazing. And there was more. Sometimes being partners with those so treated, you had compassion on those in prison. In the ancient world, if you go to prison, it's not like, it's not like Martha Stewart prison, okay? They're not going to provide for you all your, your comforts. Probably have to delete that from the sermon recording. Okay, it, it's not comfortable. It's, it's not all just given to you, a soft bed, warm meal. No, if you're going to have what you need, your friends are going to have to bring it to you. you. You see this in the life of Paul. Your friends are going to have to bring it to you. If, if you're in prison for being a Christian, and I go to that prison to feed you dinner, what's the community that put you in prison wondering about me? Are you a Christian too? Yes. I might go to prison. So what's the temptation? Well, he can, can make it a weekend without food. <laughs> That's not what they did. They had compassion. And they, they went and identified with their persecuted brothers and sisters because they were going to follow Christ through suffering goes even further. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And just, just ponder that for a moment. That blows our minds. Number one, just accepting the plundering of your property. How many of you are like, let's form a militia, okay? I don't know if that fits the gospel in this context. I remember the verse about when they persecute you, shoot them. I don't, think that's in, I don't think that's in the Gospels. 
to take it wor- to make it worse, right? You joyfully accepted it. And now now we're really confused. It's one thing to accept it. All right, fine. It's another thing to be like, yes. I just had everything stolen because I'm a Christian. Does it remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, what does Jesus say? Rejoice and be glad why I just lost my house. Because great, your, your reward is great in heaven. They believed it. They believed it. Their stuff was robbed and they believed it. And they were like, our reward is great. And the author of Hebrews is saying, do you all remember yourselves? Do you remember? This is the group that became sluggish. Because of that suffering over time. He says, remember who you are. Remember the confidence you had in the promises of God. Remember what your faith is like. Because why were they able to joyfully accept the plundering of their property? They knew that they themselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You can't take what my treasure really is. And in fact, by you taking my this world's treasure, my next world's treasure just got greater. And they believed it. They believed it. And this is what true faith is like. To believe in the reward, that it's worth it to follow Christ. Because look at Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. We get that. And what? He rewards those who seek him. Faith knows Jesus is worth the cost. Faith endures. That's why this passage for sure is not about losing your salvation. It's not about losing your salvation. Because if you had the kind of faith where you're like, eh, I don't need Jesus anymore, you never had faith. Because real faith endures. Real faith sees the reward and it's worth it. But don't hear me saying you believe Jesus and you're just, flying with joyful faith every moment, okay? There's nobody like that. But as a genuine, consistent picture, that's who you are, and you don't let go. You keep going. They need to remember that confidence. Do you see what he says? Don't throw away your confidence in the promises of God, which has a great reward. So down to our last point. What have we seen so far this morning? Remember the treasure, of having Jesus. Remember to cling to community. Remember the reality of judgment. Remember your confidence in Jesus and its reward. Last one, remember the need for endurance. You know, uh, one of America's largest exports is the prosperity gospel. And it just kind of infects everything. And And it gives you this idea that if you just came to Jesus, life would be easy, right? If you just came to Jesus, life would be easy. A, a grain of truth, okay? Is my life better because of Jesus? Unspeakably so. Yes, without Jesus, I am self-destructive. I'm a fool. I'm an idiot. Jesus has changed me in ways I don't even know, helped me in my relationships, teaches me wisdom. Yes, my life is better without Jesus. And there's another humongous way your life will be harder because of Jesus. It will be harder a thousand ways that can come to pass, but it it comes to pass. And so this idea of when I came to Jesus, I thought it was all going to roses and pony rides. No. For you, look at verse 36. Here's that last warning. For you have need of, what do you need? You need endurance. That's a better picture picture of the Christian life. And what's endurance? You keep going when you're tired. You keep going when it's not fun anymore. You keep going when it doesn't feel amazing. You keep going when your circumstances are difficult. You keep going when you, when you don't want to. You keep going because there's something deeper, something more powerful motivating you. It's your faith in the promises of God. You have need of endurance. Look at this next phrase. So that when you have done the will of God, 
In context, what is that, you guys? To do the will of God. Whose will is it that they're in a situation of sustained suffering? Did God fall asleep and wake up and think, oh, what have I done? No way. He's sovereign. He's in control. Doing the will of God is enduring and following Christ through sustained suffering. That's what Hebrews 12 is going to be about. God is working on you through this. He's moving in you through this. So you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, then you may receive what is promised. And then, of course, the author wants to build his point from the Old Testament. So he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. And what's that supposed to do for you? Yet a little while. This is seeing life through the eyes of faith, right? Right? He's coming, and when the time is right, he won't delay. Jesus is coming, yet a little while. There's Psalms, right? Lord, I don't live very long. Make your, make your promises come true now. I'm dust. I don't want to wait anymore. But part of the Christian life, endurance, waiting. Yet a little while, he's going to come. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be salvation, and I need to endure as I wait for God to keep his promises. Verse 38 my righteous one shall live by faith. Faith believes God's promises when the circumstances of your life make it seem like they're not true. When the circumstances of your life feel like God's promises aren't true, faith believes the promises of God anyway. It trusts him and knows that he's worth it. Because a lack of faith, it shrinks back, verse 38. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Why would God have no pleasure in somebody that shrinks back? Well, look what they're saying about God. Are his promises true? Not really. Is he worth the cost? No. So what did we just say to God? You're not worth it. But faith says the opposite. Is the promise true? Yes. Is he worth it? Yes. And that pleases God. That pleases God. Friends, your faith, your enduring faith through sustained suffering glorifies God in ways you don't even know. He is so pleased with your enduring faith in Jesus Christ through difficulty. Because you're saying of him, you are good, you are true, and you are worth it. He sees it. So this author is encouraging this audience, and he says finally in verse 39, may this be true of us. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Amen? We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are. Not perfect. Don't get it right every time in every way, but we're going to heed the warning. Let's work backwards. Remember your need for endurance. That's the normal Christian life. Number four, remember your confidence and how faith will bring a reward. Number three, yeah, remember the reality of judgment. You don't want to leave Jesus. Number two, remember to cling to community. And finally, because we remember the treasure of having Jesus. And just to finish with this, do you think Jesus knows what it's like to endure through hardship? In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus has never asked us to do anything. He hasn't done first and done perfectly. And he knows what it's like to endure hardship. He knows what it's like to persecute without reviling. Read First Peter. He knows what it's like to have everything taken. And we remember, this is what the, audio, this is what the, the, the author is going to take us to. Hebrews 12, 2. We'll close with this. We want to be people who are looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, there's so much suffering that can overwhelm us. Some of us are sitting in versions of it right now. So much suffering, and we think, how long we think, end this. When it's good, we come to you in prayer. We just remember for a moment, thank you that you know what it means to endure. Thank you. You have endured. Thank you that you have great sympathy and compassion for us in our endurance. And thank you that you did receive your own reward. You rose from the, from the dead. You ascended to heaven. Uh, and that joy set before you. We are a part of the reward of your endurance. You have won us for yourself. Help us love you and trust you and be satisfied in you and never flee from you to not be sluggish towards you, but to desire you, to delight in you. And let us heed this warning, Lord. Let us cling to community. Let us fear the reality of your judgment. Let us remember uh, our, our best moments of faith. We trusted you, we followed you despite the cost. And Lord, just give us the expectation of endurance. Help us to endure. And we thank you that one day it'll all come true. We will see it come to pass, and we will look at one another, we will look at you, and we will say, oh, it was worth it. It was worth it. Burn that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.